Father, it is our prayer today as we open up your holy scriptures and we see how seriously you take your righteousness and your justice. That we would think upon these words that we have just sung and realize that the righteousness of Christ is ours when we are in him and that the justice our sin deserved was satisfied upon his payment on Calvary. The great judge of all the earth will not do wrong and nothing will escape the omniscient eyes of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will rule in perfect righteousness. We thank you, therefore, that in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we have a perfect Messiah. His blood has fully and finally covered our sins. His righteousness absolutely satisfies the law's demands. And his Holy Spirit is sufficient to apply and to protect and to guard our hearts with these truths until the day he calls us home, till the day that he returns. We thank you for these promises. And I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to appreciate them all the more this morning. As we see in the pages of your Holy Scripture, from ages past, Lord, on through your unfolding revelation, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, prophesied and prefigured, fulfilled in time, buried, resurrected, ascended and reigning, now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Seal them again upon our hearts as we look at your scriptures this day. Lord, in all of this, we trust you to do so. And we thank you, Lord, for the use of this service today to equip us to glorify you and to draw the lost unto salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have this morning to open up the Holy Word of God together. Would you do so with me in turning to Psalm 82? We do one psalm a month. If you're familiar with our preaching track, you'll know this. We've been doing it for some time now. And that brings us to to Psalm the 82nd. Today's message will be under the title, Preaching to Princes. Preaching to Princes. You could also say Judges to governments, governors, people in authority, magistrates, public officials. Imagine such a thing, preaching to people that have taken on the duty and role to rule in the case of the governance of man. Well, that is indeed the context of our psalm today, as Asaph writes. I pray that the Holy Spirit would therefore use this message to accomplish this aim, that we might realize the worship value of extolling the government of God over governments of men. That we might realize the worship value. We're reading a worship psalm in a moment in Psalm 82. Let us this day pray that we might realize the worship value, the glorious truths expounded in extolling the government of God over the governments of men. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word this morning? Again, with your Bible open to Psalm 82. Follow me as I proclaim this psalm of Asaph, and here we have the holy word of God. Verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show impartiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
Verse 5, they have neither understanding, neither knowledge, nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In Psalm 82, albeit in song form and musical presentation, Asaph assumes the role of preacher to the state, preacher to governments. This role of the preacher, may I suggest, is rarely practiced these days. Why? That's an important question. We see that prophets were often called to interact with the powers that be, human governments, all through scriptures. Why would it seem more rare today than it was in the pages of scripture that the righteousness, the justice, the truth of God would not be held up by its proclaimers, by its preachers, to those who are called to rule accordingly, namely judges, magistrates, rulers, governors, presidents, people in authority. After all, there is only one standard of righteousness, and it is the holy immutable word of God. And in that word, we find his unalterable, though the grass withers and flowers fade, though culture changes with whims of corrupting values, we find the unalterable word and law of God. Generally, I am inclined to conclude that the reason we don't see preachers to the state as often these days is because the government itself, government of man, has become an idol. Modern man is a state worshiper more often than not. I submit to you today. Listen to this statement. There is no sermon appropriate to preach to one's God after all. It is not appropriate to preach to one's God. And if you worship the state, it doesn't make sense to preach a sermon to the state. However, people would like to preach many sermons to God. I would prefer that Christianity be changed. What do they do? They use the standard of righteousness that has been corrupted by the whims of man and the the winds uh, of of doctrine and and apostasy that blow across our land, and they try to reform Christianity in their own image. And so we see under these conditions, the truth and the standards by which we are to judge man uh, upside down, abandoned and left beside the road, and another idol exalted in the Lord's place. There is no sermon appropriate to preach to one's God after all. Now, if we look a little more closely at our culture today, especially with respect to the situation or the relationship between, let's say, evangelical leaders and political leaders, we might find a little more reason for discernment or a little, uh, some reason for a little closer discernment. That is to say, a prophetic voice to government may be effectively silenced by subtle compromise. These days, the relationship of evangelical leaders to politicians seems to be, in most cases, a mutually beneficial situation where the magistrate is happy to court the endorsement of a religious leader presenting a religious segment or representing a religious segment of the voting public. And there's sort of an exchange here, a quid pro quo, if you will. Uh, Meanwhile, the evangelical leader is happy to secure a seat at the political table hoping, perhaps with good intentions, to influence policy. Now, that often seems to hamper the clarity, the power, 
of the prophetic voice of Scripture more often than not. I suggest these days we seldom see a prophet Nathan-like to King David, or a prophet Nathan to King David-type confrontation declaring to a public official, you, O king, are the man. This upon the revelation that David himself had abused his position and committed adultery, had murdered a man unjustly, and had lied about it all the while. Breaking these of God's precious and holy commandments was a serious offense, offense to which even kings must be held to account. Who will hold them to account? Asaph raises his hands and says in Psalm 82, I will. Will preachers today raise their hand and say in as many words, I will proclaim the word of God and hold governors, kings, people in authority to account, even if the potential cost is high? Nathan did not know if David was in a cantankerous mood, how deep his sin was, if he would have been been condemned to the sword for daring to call out the sovereign of Israel for his personal sin. Nevertheless, he did it anyway. Why? Because Nathan served a higher sovereign than King David. Nathan swore allegiance to a higher authority than the king of his country. He swore allegiance to the word of God, to the coming Messiah, indeed, the full scope of scripture we can say, to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we swear our ultimate allegiance to him today? So this is a lesson that Asaph teaches us today, that the word of God is there to correct, to be applied to the powers that be, the government structures of our hour, our day. A second lesson is perhaps available for us. This has to do with the aim of this morning's message. And it's an answer, it comes by way of an answer to this question. What worship value does a psalm oriented as a rebuke to governing authorities contain for the church? This is a a song that was meant to be sung in worship. Do we imagine songs that basically are rebuke to governing authorities to be a suitable topic for worship? If we don't, we're missing something because the Bible considers them as such, and this is meant to be sung as a worship psalm to God. So let me proffer a suggestion as to the worship value of Psalm 82, and it is this. When we proclaim the law of God and his reprimands to the rulers of men in our praises, our allegiance and our fears are redirected from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm. Let me say that again. When we proclaim the law of God and his correctives, his rebukes, his reprimands to the rulers of men in our praises, in our confession, in our convictions, our allegiances and our fears are redirected from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm. I'm sure you've been guilty of both of these as have I. That is fear and allegiances misplaced. How easy is it for us to invest our hope in what the next politician in the next election promises for our particular interests. Our allegiance oftentimes are restricted to human agents, and we don't rise above that often enough to see in light of Scripture if that individual indeed is endeavoring to rule according to the truth and the powerful righteousness proclaimed and written down in God's holy word. That's an allegiance problem. Secondly, if we don't fall into that pitfall, we often fall into another. We fear what human rulers, mere human rulers, might be able to do to us. And so we might cower and compromise. We might be less bold with our proclamation. We may be uh, less likely to count the cost of persecution for Christ's namesake. Why? Because we are uh, placing too much fear, 
too much uh, trepidation, too much intimidation in mere men. As we announce in our praises, in our confession, that rebuke is actually in order for lawless uh, governments, tyrannies, men who do not rule according to God's word. When we do this, it it shifts, may I suggest, our allegiances and our fears from the earthly realm to the heavenly. And this is a great theme in Psalm 82. Notice verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is a call to a court, a call to accountability. Court is in session. In the heavenly realm, God rules sovereignly and with authority and will not be, he will not be challenged uh, successfully. All who stand uh, in opposition to him will be destroyed and ultimately judged. And this is the heavenly scenario. In this situation, where God calls men and kings to account in his divine counsel, need we fear that uh, someone might get the upper hand over him and exercise his sovereignty above and beyond what God can do? Uh, Certainly not. And so our perspective has changed accordingly. Let us consider in a little more detail Psalm 82 and what further lessons there may be to learn. Let me suggest a heading this morning. Asaph proclaims to the prince the following. You could also say Asaph proclaims to the judge, to the government official, to any who are delegated with a certain authority to rule over others. Asaph proclaims to the prince the following. Number one, his obligation. Number two, he proclaims an indictment. And finally, we'll consider this morning a summons. Asaph in Psalm 82 proclaims to the prince his obligation, an indictment, and a summons. Now, this psalm has a unique structure. Well, there are other places in Scripture that share this structure. I've mentioned it before. It's a chiastic structure. What does chiastic structure mean? Well, if you assign an idea, a letter value, like you would a poem, a rhyme, you know, like the end phrase is a rhyme, and it rhymes with another phrase, if you assign that a letter value, a certain structure that you see in the meter of that poem. Well, Hebrew poetry does that in similar ways, only with ideas. We don't necessarily see rhymes, especially with the translation, but we, see, but we do see rhyming ideas, if you will. Verse 1, may I suggest, rhymes with verse 8. So God has taken his place in the divine council. A summons is being issued. And that summons is reiterated in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. It's a call for judgment, a call for the sovereign to hold court. So that is the first set of parallel ideas. The second is the indictment. Verse 2 corresponds with perhaps 5 through 7 in this regard. How long, verse 2, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then again, we see verse 5, this same theme being picked up. They have, speaking of the wicked judge, neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and so forth. It's an indictment. And then right in the center of the psalm, which I suggest is perhaps the focus, the primary message that the judge reading this psalm ought to take away is his obligation. So let's start there in verses three and four. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Here we have proclaimed in Psalm 82, three and four, under God, The divine obligation or the divinely decreed, ordained obligation for those who are given the job of ruling, of judging, 
of mediating between disputes, of holding court, of deciding difficult cases, of making legislation, of ruling over the affairs of other men. Their obligation is listed by these words, justice, and we see this as applied to the weak and fatherless, rights, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, and then in verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy, and finally, deliverance, or deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Justice, rights, rescue, and deliverance. The obligation of the godly judge is to see what the Bible has to say about his duty with regard to these priorities. Now, when we think about God's justice, especially with respect to passages like this, it's important to also note that difficult passages such as we have today have often been misused. Now, in this passage, we'll talk about this in a moment. We'll speak of it in the course of our message. But the term God or Elohim is used with reference to earthly judges. So that is a curious reference. Indeed, considering the absolute commitment to monotheism, there is only one God in Scripture. So what does Asaph mean then when he uses the term gods to refer to judges? Now, some have misused this text to say we are much like gods. The prosperity gospel, so-called teaching, has sought to proof text from this passage that we have power in our confession, much like God has, we can speak things into being. Well, such indeed is not the case. That is a misread. That may be more, uh, less common today, that misuse of Psalm 82. But I suggest there's another error that might be more uh, prevalent now, given the state of culture and wh- where we find ourselves in. And that is the interpretation of what justice really is in the social realm. You've heard the term, no doubt, social justice activism or social justice warriors, those who dedicate themselves to social justice causes. The Bible speaks with authority and clarity on social justice issues, if you will. But let me tell you, it is its own unique and a standard and is not up for adjustment or change. When we hear terms like justice today, usually it's perverted by people who elevate things that God hates to the position of ideas, values, and virtues that they think need to be defended. Justice More often than not, when you hear it, this word used in politics today or in the greater cultural discourse has become defined by an apostate culture. An apostate culture meaning they have left their once professed faith in the standard of righteousness in God's holy word and now they elevate sinful tendencies, lifestyles and so forth to the place of worthy uh, special interests that need to be defended. In so doing, we tend to, in our world today, engineer out of whole sinful cloth, whole classes of victims, and then we beseech humanistic government institutions as the highest authority, or we beseech them to intervene outside of the parameters of their God-ordained jurisdiction to address our new and improved grievances. Now, that may be confusing, but let me try to simplify. When people expect the government to act today, they usually do so committing one of two errors. Number one, they're asking the government to call righteous and worthy of protection that which God hates, a very common trend in our society today. 
Number two, they ask of the government things that are outside of their jurisdictional purview. In this, and in this way, we worship government as God. Government is not the final answer or the total solution to end all global poverty. Neither is technology. Neither is a consortium of experts internationally who can gather together and solve all the world's problems. There is only one Savior. And Jesus Christ holds exclusive rights to salvation across the board. And it begins with the condition of the human heart. We've substituted the most important concerns, the most dire of crises, namely the fact that we as sinners are separated from the holy God with a host of other concerns that we call justice. And in this misguided, cause-oriented, virtue-signaling culture, we've elevated things in disproportionate ways, and we sought government out as God to intercede on our behalf. When the Bible speaks to justice, it speaks to things as God defines them, justice, righteousness, rescue, and deliverance of those uh, according to the biblical terms of these, uh, of these concepts. First of all, rights. When we read of rights in scripture, we know from the greater teaching and context that what is seen here is that there is equal dignity as image bearers to be ascribed to all people and equal culpability under the law. Everyone is to be treated the same under the law with respect to their accountability to it. That law is to be just and each individual as created in the image of God, the government has the responsibility to intercede on their behalf insofar as they are called to defend their rights. Let us uh, consider by way of example, the right to life. The right to life ought to be extended to all individuals as all individuals are made in the image of God and all are culpable, every individual, to the terms of the law. This is biblical justice. Uh, rescue and deliverance. The proper use of the sword is to stand between the tyrant and the exploited. Notice verse four, rescue the weak and the needy Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, oftentimes today in our upside down and ungodly society, justice, quote unquote, is for sale. Those who can afford the best attorneys, those who are the most famous and well and in well stead and well standing in our society are more apt to get apt to get a favorable verdict in our court system. This is not justice according to scripture. Justice is to intervene. The court and the magistrate is to intercede on behalf of those who are least able to defend themselves. They are, in fact, to give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Those that don't have the strength, the means, the money, the importance to uh, rally for themselves a great defense by way of careful or by way of expensive legal representation or even others who can come to their defense uh, in testimony and so forth, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They, these are the test cases, if you will, for biblical justice. The obligation of the prince is to enforce God's ultimate standards of righteousness and truth and to do it in a way where the test cases, those where it would be easiest to overlook the righteousness of God, he in fact follows through because he as a judge with integrity applies the word of God in each and every case. Even though there may be a bribe on the line by a rich man, who, rich man who would seek to alter his judgment by payment or uh, 
the, uh, the thankless job of uh, defending those who can't defend themselves and have no voice, in fact. These test cases uh, actually lay out the terms or a, a litmus test, if you will, for righteousness in our land. How do you think we are stacking up? How are the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, and the needy represented in our land? Recently, I listened to a testimony, listened to an interview of two advocates for children conceived in rape that were uh, in hearings before the Iowa legislature. Uh, in recent weeks, Iowa has passed a something of a heartbeat bill, I suppose, where uh, certain individuals, when there's a detectable heartbeat, the uh, baby in the womb is protected by Iowa law. That's the idea. This law has problems and exceptions and so forth. What these two women were doing at the state capitol was advocating on behalf of the right to life for children conceived in rape. The one woman herself had been conceived in rape, and she was a survivor of multiple abortion attempts. The other woman was a mother of a child who was conceived in rape. And at the time, she was a happily, faithfully married woman. Now, let me tell you, when these women spoke on behalf of these, like themselves and like their children, who fell well into the category of the weak, the needy, the destitute, and the afflicted, their voice rang with some prophetic power, let me tell you. In fact, the boldness of the biblical stand that they took was unopposed when they were summoned in that hearing. No one dared to tell them, you do not have the right to speak. You do not have the right to defend your right to life as a child conceived under these circumstances. No one, none of the magistrates, none of the legislature, legislators had the boldness, had the courage to tell them that their voice should not be at the table. However, when it came time to vote on the final legislation, guess who was overlooked? I think you guessed it. Yes, those who were the most easy to exploit, those who fell into the category of the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the needy, the weak who can't defend themselves. And to the degree that they did not receive justice in this situation, that was a miscarriage of the obligation of those legislators to defend the cause of those upon whom the Lord says we have the responsibility to equally defend. A child in the womb cannot defend himself or herself. A child in the womb cannot speak for himself or for herself. God bless these women who speak, who spoke on their behalf. But the charge in our land is that they would heed People who are in a position to rule accordingly would heed Psalm 82 and repent and to begin to pass the test cases for the justice of God. Lord, let it be. In the meantime, pray that God might raise up Nathans and Asaphs who would proclaim to the powers that be their duty, their obligation under the Lord. Asaph proclaims to the prince his obligation. Second major point this morning. Asaph proclaims to the prince an indictment. Now, seen in his day that the rulers have fallen short of their obligation, he now brings a word of judgment to them. Notice in verse 2, 
How long will you judge unjustly and show impartiality to the wicked? So this is a charge levied against, as if this were a court case against the offender. The charges that Asaph are bringing is that you as a judge are unfaithful to your duty, have fallen short of your obligation. You are ruling unjustly and you are showing partiality, that is favoritism, to the wicked. Those who are wicked have a better chance of receiving your favor than those who are weak, destitute, afflicted, and needy, and so forth. Now, this idea, this theme is picked up in verses 5 through 7, reiterated. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. Again, the indictment, speaking of the wicked princes or judges, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. In these verses, as this indictment goes forth, first of all, we see their transgression in plain favorites, as I mentioned. They were tempted by what the wicked could offer, rich men who could no doubt bribe them with money, or ruling in a situation that would secure more power for them having a lust for importance as a magistrate, a governor who seeks, it for pers- who seeks that position for personal gain. Or perhaps they wanted to be perceived by the culture as a good in their eyes, rather, per- rather than perceived by God as faithful in his eyes. When a legislator today, or anyone with authority for that matter, considers their duty, are they more apt to consider their duty before men the constituency who will vote for them next election? Or are they more apt to consider their duty before the Lord? Again, may we shift our allegiances and our fear from the earthly realm to the heavenly. A godly judge who rules with integrity knows and he is aware that he answers to God. He fears God rather than men. Now there are applications for this principle for you today. You are called to rule in some cases. Does the Bible not tell us that by reason of use, we are to have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil? In other words, you as a discerning believer are called to make sound judgments. And there is a price to pay for your convictions when you, according to the values of the day, fall short of what the ungodly and wicked world calls virtuous. Where will your fear be? Who do you answer to? Do you answer to the Lord who rules in heaven with an unchanging standard of righteousness and you let the chips fall with their, where they may and you stand for what scripture says is right and wrong and you offer all the while along with the proclamation of God's law, the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ who was killed to pay the price of our law breaking? Do you do that? Or are you tempted to alter, to play favorites for the wicked? The indictment continues. The fallout is significant. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. The scriptures speak again in the Psalms. This is a common theme in the Psalms. Psalm 94, as I recall, delivers a word of judgment against those who, in the words of the psalmist in that instance, frame injustice by statute. Frame injustice by statute. One might ask the question, what are the long-term consequences? What is the fallout for a society, 
for a people, for a community, if justice is constantly, God's standards of truth and righteousness are constantly ignored or abused? Well, this is a kind of reckless obstinance which threatens the very foundations of social order and the very peace and well-being and future of a society. This is a reckless obstinance which, uh, more so out of rebellion, may I suggest, than ignorance, refuses to acknowledge and to understand where the ultimate standards of truth abide. Verse 5, they, again, speaking to those who rule unjustly, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They are obstinate to the book of Proverbs, which says from the very beginning that the beginning of the book, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the same. Uh, Colossians goes on to say that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in one place, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ holds, holds sole claim to all knowledge, all understanding, including that which is necessary for just rule in a society. And ruling rightly begins with the fear of the Lord, as we've already stated. It's reiterated throughout the scriptures, old covenant and new. However, those who are recklessly obstinate, they cover their eyes and stop their ears to the proclamation in God's holy word where the source of knowledge and understanding truly are. They instead choose, in this analogy, in this picture, in Psalm 82, to walk about in darkness. They cannot see, they cannot perceive, they don't know where they've been, they don't know where they're going. The blind, quite literally, leading the blind as far as it goes with their duty to rule rightly when the cause of justice is before them. Now, the fallout is listed as the found in verse 5 as all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The very fabric and the well-being, the cohesiveness, the foundation for our society is compromised when these things are uh, negotiated and when we are willfully blind and willfully stupid with regard to the truth of God's holy word. It's like burning down the village to keep warm for one single winter night. When courts rule against God's scripture and they begin to again frame injustice by statute, it's like burning down the village to keep us warm for one cold winter night. When uh, judges are called to rule, it might be difficult to do so rightly. There may be protests as long as the streets in the city, but if they do so under God and do so according to his righteousness, there is a promise. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation who exalts his righteousness as the standard foundation, as the ultimate rule for their law and their legislators and so forth. So may God convict us, even in our land, of reckless obstinance, of undermining our foundations to build our edifice taller, of burning down the whole city to stay warm for one night. Uh, socialism is unbiblical. Why, you might ask? Because it's based upon breaking several commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. May I suggest to you, I might be getting some, a little controversial here, but take it to Scripture and see if this passes muster. Socialism codifies uh, covetousness by statute. 
It says that there will not be justice till everybody owns exactly what his neighbor has. Furthermore, we see the outworking of these consequences in recent cases. Now, even today, there are advocates for this proven failure of a system and uh, proven to break God's law, which again says, thou shalt not steal, which presupposes private property. Who owns what? Well, first of all, God owns all the earth. And so we must look to him to how he has chosen to delegate his property. And he does so according to stewardship. It is not right, even if you are the government, to steal from me and to give to someone else. Uh, these kinds of examples are miscarriage, may I suggest, of justice. Just to give you a practical application of one political philosophy that in my judgment, according to scripture, falls short. This leads to gross contradictions. A clever meme I I came across recently said the following. It was a quote from Bernie Sanders. He said, the problem with America is guns, greed, and prisons. And then someone cleverly added to the end, so give me 90% of your income or government agents will put you in jail at gunpoint. It's kind of a clever way to point out the sort of self-contradictory nature of falling short of God's law and standard when it comes to righteous rule in government. Now, under this indictment, there is a verdict. We find in the course of our text here, verses 6 and 7, saying that there is a day of judgment coming. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, the term God is used with reference. It's Elohim in the original language with reference to judges. And in the context here, we see it in both a positive sense and a negative sense. The positive is in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. So in this way, how can uh, the term Elohim be used in a positive sense with respect to those who are called to be justices or magistrates and the like? Well, this use of the term Elohim is not in essence but in office. The use of the word God or Elohim to refer to judges speaks to their obligation to rule on God's behalf, to administer the justice of God in their jurisdiction, having been granted a degree of sovereignty over men, they are accountable to the judge of judges for how they rule in their official capacity. So inasmuch as God has delegated a certain amount of rule to agents, human agents. They are called to rule as God, that is, to use his standard of righteousness and do so in a way that is accountable to the judge of judges. Now, there is a negative sense that the term God is used as well. There's this kind of play on words going on in this poetic description or this poetic message in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So in the context here, Asaph is using the term gods in a kind of ironic or satirical way. This is a negative use. He is, this is a satirical reference designed to illustrate the pathological, the foolish and insane self-importance that political leaders often assume alongside the idolatrous glory their supporters ascribe to them. And this should be contrasted to the true king, the king of kings, the ultimate authority that rules over them, especially evident upon his day of reckoning. If you're looking for just an awesome 
example of this, illustration of this, even within the pages of Scripture, let me read to you three verses from Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod. Who was Herod? Kids, do you know what Herod, who Herod was? Who was Herod? Does anyone know? He was... Was he a prophet? No, he was a... He was a king. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus... That's a cool name, Blastus. <clears throat> the king's chamberlain, so the king's counselor, they asked for peace because their de country depended on the king's country for food. So they needed food and they were seeking Herod through his councilmen for supply. So for the stuff that they needed to continue to uh, survive and so forth. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. The people were extolling, they were elevating Herod as a God. But Herod wasn't a God, obviously, in the sense that the people were extolling him. He was a mere human judge. Uh, kids, what happened to Herod? Does anyone know? He died. That's right. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The smallest of the creatures, the worms, the least sentient in some, in some sense you could say among all of God's created beings declared dominion over this once self-important and worshiped prince. What a fall from grace. Uh, what an amazing collapse of a man who received the worship of the people as a god, all of a sudden, the worms declared dominion over him, and he became their food. This to illustrate that those who have neither knowledge nor understanding, but walk about in darkness, and thus threaten the very foundations of the earth, can expect the following. Uh, sons of the Most High, all of you? Yeah, right. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Ultimately, Psalm 82 looks forward to two things. There is a day of reckoning, a day when all the balances were, will be righted by the ultimate judge, and there is a judge to come. That is the true son of the Most High. Psalm 82 prepares us for Jesus Christ arriving on the scene. Note the last phrase, for you shall inherit the nations. Who do you think Asaph is speaking to when he says these words? You shall inherit the nations. Well, let me submit the same individual who receives the message from Psalm 2. We turn back to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We see that the kings of the earth set themselves against uh, the, the holy king and so forth. And it says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who will receive all the nations of the earth as their possession? Who will inherit all the kingdoms of the world? Kids, do you know the answer to that one? That's true. More specifically, Jesus. Jesus. Excellent answer. Daniel 7. There's a picture. Who the Son of Man ascends before the Ancient of Days, and he is given a gift by God the Father in that picture. And what is it? It's the kingdoms of this world. 
What was our worship text this morning? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and he shall reign forever and ever. What event signaled that this moment was upon us? May I suggest to you the ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where did he go? Hebrews 1 tells us he ascended before the right hand of the majesty on high. Stephen, when he is being killed by unjust magistrates, sees the heavens open and one like the Son of Man. He's there at the right hand of God, standing in defense of his servant, Stephen, who is unjustly condemned, a miscarriage of justice, and is killed for his profession of faith. Yet Jesus Christ, the judge of judges, he sees over all. <clears throat> in this sense, Stephen himself sees Jesus in his place in the divine council, and he takes great consolation, great reassurance that there is a day of reckoning coming when Abel's blood, though it cries out for justice from the ground, will finally receive its just due. When will this happen? When Jesus Christ finally, in the culmination of his kingdom, asserts his full and final authority. Now today we sang about the precious blood of Jesus. Why is the blood of Jesus so precious to us? Because we deserve to be judged, just like every unfaithful magistrate. How do we stand with respect to the demands of a holy God? We fall short of his standard of righteousness in every possible way. But what better savior... What better God, King of Kings, what better Lord of Lords to beseech than the one who is both the judge of judges and our high priest, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and shed his own blood for our salvation. Herein is the answer. Herein is the Savior. Here is the inheritor of all the nations, Jesus Christ. Psalm 82 points forward to a day of perfect government where justice will never fail again. A government that is perfectly remade in the image of God's original intent. And you, if you know Jesus today, will be a citizen of that great government. We are a citizen now, but we will fully realize the glorious terms and conditions in the new heavens and the new earth. Amazing truths are packed in and uh, the implications of Psalm 82. Consider them this week as we meditate on his holy word. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, though we have all fallen short of your glory. And though we see judges and those who are called to uphold your righteousness falling short of the same standard, we thank you that there is hope for salvation, correction, and repentance in the proclaimed word of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, our Lord. We pray, Lord, in a day where darkness encroaches, that the light of Jesus Christ would shine all the brighter, calling sinners to repentance, calling magistrates to repentance, and announcing that he is truly king of kings. Lord, help us in this regard to remain faithful, to be confident, and to glean great assurance, reassurance from your word. Lord, I pray that Psalm 82 would do that for us this week. And Lord, I pray if there are any who stand condemned before the judge of all the universe today, that they would repent of their sins, place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and receive payment for the same in his shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.